Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are working our way uh, through the book of Revelation, one of the most misunderstood, one of the most abused books of the scriptures. And while some sort of modern folks treat it as like the, the doom and gloom, like guidebook towards the end of the world, right? Like what we see and what we have been seeing is that this book is meant to reveal and unveil how God is actually working behind the scenes in every age of the church. And, um, and before, before I actually continue my notes, I, I just want to say that I, I love the feedback that we've been getting from, from you guys like during this series. Uh, I know that some of you guys who grew up in the church have been sharing about how, like, for the first time, you're understanding big themes in the scriptures through this study and revelation that maybe you didn't see before. For some of you who are newer to the faith, like you've shared with us how you're, you're growing to love the Bible and trust Jesus more. Uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful, like, one, that you're paying attention. Um, but, but more than that, that you're just receiving and thinking and praying and considering um, what we're going through, the words of these, oh, thanks, bud, the words of, uh, that we've been studying through our teaching series. And so that's just been a great encouragement to, to our team as we've been getting feedback and hearing from you guys about this series. But this afternoon, we're going to head now, turn the corner into Revelation chapter 3, all right? We're continuing our way through the seven letters uh, to seven different churches, and as we're going through these letters, we need to remember that while Jesus is writing specific letters to specific churches in a specific time, through these letters, he's speaking to all churches in every age. And so, again, there's seven different letters that he's writing, and that number seven is, is, is not accidental, the number seven is a number that symbolizes throughout the book of Revelation the number of completeness, the number of wholeness. And so by reading the mail of these seven churches, we're getting a, a snapshot or a picture of Jesus' message to his whole church in every place and in every generation. Does that make sense? So before we look at Revelation 3, um, why, don't we, why don't we pray and ask God to bless uh, our time this afternoon. So Lord, we, we come before you with your word open before us, with our hearts ready to receive just the seed of your word to be planted in our hearts and and we ask, God, that just even right now as we pray that you would um, just prepare the soil of our hearts to receive this word. That our time this afternoon would bring glory to you and would bring spiritual growth to us to make us look more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. So. This afternoon, we're looking at church number five, letter number five to the church in Sardis, uh, which is located in what we would consider like modern day Turkey. Now, a little bit of history. At the time uh, that this was written, about 96 AD, the population in Sardis was just under 100,000 people, which was a lot uh, for a, a city in that time. 
It was a very wealthy community that had a history of idol worship and demonic influence. And so it was a big deal and a really good thing when eventually a church was planted here in Sardis to be a beacon of light in a dark place, to be a picture of wholeness in a fractured world. And I think it bears repeating that that's exactly what every local church is. Light in a dark world, wholeness in a fractured world. And we like to articulate this here at our church by saying that we are spiritual family formed by the gospel to live for the glory of God and the good of others in the everyday stuff of life. That's what the mission of every local church has been since the first century. And so now here's the apostle John writing the book of Revelation, he's been exiled to this island of Patmos. Jesus appears to him with a message for the church here in Sardis. And here's what he has to say. Look at verse 1. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which is just Jesus' way of introducing himself as the one true God. Because there was an emperor around at the time by the name of Domitian, and on, on the back of their currency, he used to name himself as, uh, it would say that Domitian was God. And some of the currency had pictures of stars, is a way to say that Domitian is the one who holds the stars. Uh, he's like a god worthy to be worshipped. And, and it's not unlike how if our current currency, like on, on, a, on the back of a lot of our coins, it says... In, in who we trust, in, in God we trust, right? And so it, when Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, that's his way of saying, no, look, I'm the one true God who's the only one that is truly worthy of worship. And he says to the church in Sardis, he says, as the verse continues, I know your works, I know your works, and you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And just to be clear, so there's no confusion, like, that's not a compliment. Right? This would be like someone who loves you, who knows you better than anyone, like maybe your best friend, your significant other, and they come up to you and they say, like, hey, look, everyone, word's going around, and everyone thinks you're a great person, and that you're really nice, but I know you and you're not, right? Like, that's not a compliment. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's the one who sees all things. He's the one who, who knows all things. He's never tricked by one's outward performance. He knows the true spiritual state of all of our hearts, and he knows the true spiritual state of this church in Sardis. And he says to them, hey, you guys have a great reputation around here for being alive, but I know that underneath that outward veneer, underneath that outside appearance that you, you put out there, you're spiritually dead and rotting. So here's the first thing I want us to see from this text. Number one, this church, the church in Sardis, was outwardly impressive, but inwardly dead. All right, that's our first point, that this church was outwardly impressive, but inwardly dead. Now, it's worth noting that the church in Sardis was not what outside observers would call a dead church, right? Jesus said that they had a reputation for being alive. So that means they were known for being kind of where it's at. They were known for having a good thing going. It was an active church. They had events and programs that were taking place. That music that was banging, right? Like people came to this church. They seemed to be alive. We're led to believe that their doctrine was sound because Jesus like uh, uh, corrects and challenges other churches in Revelation 2 and 3 for not having sound doctrine. And he doesn't mention that here. And so we're led to believe that their doctrine was sound 
that they regularly, regularly celebrated the, the ordinances like communion and baptism, that uh, they were reaching people, and history actually tells us that the church in Sardis was also uh, probably the largest church of all the seven that Jesus is writing to. So this is a huge church. And yet the Lord of the church, Jesus, says, dead. You are dead. Everyone thinks you're alive, but you're dead. Though it appeared to be alive in the eyes of men, Jesus saw the church in Sardis to be just this propped up sort of skeleton with hardly any real spiritual life, hardly any real spiritual vitality going on. I want you to notice something unique about his letter to this church. There's, there's actually no specific encouragement for this church. In most of the other letters in this book, and in, in, in most of the letters that we've already seen, there's usually something praiseworthy that Jesus starts with, right? He usually starts by saying, like, hey, you've got, you've got this going for you. You've got these great things going for you, but I, but I have this one complaint against you, or I have these few things against you, right? He says, like, you've got these great, he normally says, like, you've been great at all these things, but you don't, if you don't address this, this one complaint I have against you, then you're going to drift away from me. But for the church in Sardis, there's no encouragement. No mention of anything faithful going on at the time. There's nothing praiseworthy for the church in Sardis. He just says, hey, people think you've got a good thing going on, but it's empty and dead on the inside. Jesus further describes the problem in verse 2 when he says to them, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, what does he mean when he says that I've not found your works complete? What does he mean when he says your works are incomplete? Now, the Greek word translated here as complete literally means to be filled up or to be fulfilled. And so this is Jesus' way of saying, look, I don't find your works fulfilling or satisfying to me. This is his way of saying, look, the big stuff you've got going on is an empty shell because there's no real substance there. Again, I want, us, I want us as we look at these letters to be considering what is it that Jesus would have to say to us? What is it that Jesus would have to say to our church? What would he commend in us? What would he correct in us? Or what would he say to, to you? What would he commend to you and to your family? What would he want to correct or maybe challenge in you or your family? What he says to the church in Sardis is, you guys are more concerned about the reputation that you have before people that you're not living, actually living, like you're living before God. And because of that, there's no real substance to your spirituality. He says, look, people know that you associate with Jesus. People know that you associate with the Bible. You're even unashamed to talk about Jesus when you're surrounded by unbelievers. I mean, you, this is the hugest church in, of all the churches that he's writing to. But when we consider how Christ has actually changed us from the inside out, when we actually consider how the gospel bears weight on the culture of a church or how we live our lives as individuals, then he says, you guys are all flair and no substance. And Jesus says, that's just so unsatisfying to me. You're, you're incomplete. You're unfulfilling. Like there's a reason why when you're hungry, you'd be more prone to grab like a drumstick, maybe even a celery stick, than like a popsicle stick, right? 
Because a chicken drumstick has actual meat on it. It's got actual nourishment, actual substance. Popsicle stick has no nourishment. You can't eat that. It's, there's, got, it's got, there's no category for it on the food pyramid. And the reason that's true for the church in Sardis is they say one thing with their mouths, but another thing is true about them in their actual lives, in their hearts, just the culture that they have as a church. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul draws attention to this when he says, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You see, what's happened to the church in Sardis is they've set their mind on the things of the flesh, which Paul says is death. That's why they're a dead church. The Puritan John Owen wrote an entire book on those two verses in Romans 8, which is kind of what they did back then, right? Like they'd write entire books on like a single group of verses. Uh, and he wrote a, a book uh, on those on that verse in, on Romans uh, 8, 6, called The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded. Uh, and I'm not going to read a quote from it, but just to paraphrase, like in that book, he makes at one point this really helpful observation that he kind of expounds on. And his observation is that there's a way to do spiritual activity a way to do religious behavior that brings glory to God and does good to your neighbor. But there's also a way to do similar-looking spiritual activity with a fleshly mindedness that does infinite harm to your neighbor and brings no glory to God because there's no real substance to it. And that happens when, Owen says, when we do spiritual things for the sake of being seen as spiritual, rather than doing spiritual things as coming from a place of actual spirituality. In other words, we do spiritual things uh, where they're not an overflow of how the grace of God has actually transformed your heart has actually transformed your life, but instead you're doing spiritual stuff just as an overflow of your fleshly desire to impress other people. Or maybe impress yourself. Do right by your family, but you're not actually living actively before the face of God. You see, what needs to be encouraged is not a culture of performance, which we're really good at in the West, but a culture of true spiritual living, true living that overflows from a life that loves God, that genuinely loves God because of the gospel, because God made us. And though we've rebelled against him, he's pursued us. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. He's renewed us. And he's empowered us to live for him and to love others. You see, that's the error of the church in Sardis. They were outwardly impressive, but they were inwardly dead because their concern was a fleshly concern to impress others rather than a spiritual concern. And so that leads us now into our second point. How does Jesus actually encourage true spiritual living? How does he encourage true spiritual living? Um, there's a number of commands or exhortations that we see in the next few verses. I think there's like four or five of them. We're just going to look at them one by one. All right? Here's how Jesus encourages true spiritual living. Verse 2, he simply says, you just wake up. <laughs> right? He says, wake up. <clears throat> he actually says, wake up twice. Also in verse 3, we see that he tells them to wake up. Now, the way that we translate the Greek here into English actually misses the impact of Jesus' command. Like the literal meaning here should not be just wake up, but keep on waking up. 
or, or to better say it, like to keep on being watchful. Become a watchful person. Now, now this, this command here from Jesus carried special weight for Christians in Sardis because history actually tells us that the city of Sardis fell two times because of a lack of watchfulness. Just like Pergamum, the city of Sardis was built on the side of a mountain, like Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings, right? And so it seemed invincible. It seemed invincible. It seemed like the kind of place that was fortified, that was you know, tucked away on the side of a, of, of a mountain. It could withstand military attacks from the outside because you could see the enemy coming in from far away, right? But twice in Sardis's recent history, uh, it became a little too confident, a little too relaxed, too comfortable in their high position. Around 55 BC, a king by the name of Cyrus captured the city by sending just one dude, a single climber, uh, up a crack in one of the, the, the walls of the fortress. He just sent one guy up to the crack to go in and like unlock a door. They took siege over the city. In 218 BC, Antiochus the Great captured the city by sending 15 guys to do what uh, that one guy did early on. And so he sent 15 guys to, except this time they scaled a wall from the outside. Uh, and once the guys dropped down on the other side, they walked over to the edge and just kind of opened up the gates and they seized the city. And so Sardis, the city, almost became like this living parable that you're never more in danger than when you're just feeling too comfortable. When you find yourself just too relaxed. It's also worth noting that being watchful is an exhortation we hear Jesus himself give over and over again, telling his disciples to stay alert, telling them in the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and to pray. He tells his disciples in another place, blessed are those who, that the master finds awake when he comes, talking about the second coming. So that's the first thing that Jesus encourages us to do if we want to be uh, marked by true spiritual living is just simply to be watchful or to wake up. And then as verse 2 continues, he says, strengthens what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, what is he talking about? What is it that they need to strengthen and is about to die. Like if a church is dead, then what exactly is it that remains? What he's referring to is the outward forms of the Christian life. Rituals, liturgy, worship, disciplines, spiritual disciplines. You see, the problem for the church in Sardis is not with their outward forms of spirituality. It was that the problem was that underneath the outward forms of spirituality, there was no real substance. And so sometimes we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which I just realized is a really morbid metaphor <laughs> once you try to picture it. <laughs> but you know what that phrase means, right? Like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like back in the day, like they used to bathe babies in a little basin, and then you take the, the, the bathwater, it was all dirty, and you like throw it away. And obviously, like how, how backwards and foolish would it be if while you're throwing what you don't want anymore, the dirty water, you also throw out the baby. And what happens is that in recent decades of the church, we're talking like 20th, 21st century now, is that churches will look around and they'll say like, oh man, we're losing the culture, right? We're losing the culture. We're, 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 we're spir spirituality is dying there. People aren't religious anymore. They don't identify as Christian anymore. And so, and so what happened is that we've assumed that the solution is we got to change what we do. Right? Let's just change what we do, right? If what we're doing isn't working, then let's change what we do. And so instead of meeting for worship on Sundays, like maybe every once in a while we'll do something different. We'll just not meet and do, you know, like do like a, a, just a beach day on a Sunday or a service project or something like that. Or instead of going through books of the Bible, let's do these topical series on living that victorious life. 
Instead of singing hymns, let's sing these repetitive love songs to Jesus. Now, not all of those things are bad or wrong, but the better thing we should do is to ask, man, why did we do those things in the first place? Did those practices actually come to us from the Bible? And if they did, then we shouldn't change them. And so if they're not working, maybe we need to revisit what purpose do they serve? And then we see is that we worship on Sundays because it's the Lord's day. It's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, not just Easter. And so that day, the Lord's day, it belongs to him. Or we go through books of the Bible because that's how Christians are formed, through the preaching of the word. And so we go through books of the Bible because it forces us to see how Jesus shines on every page of every book. Going through books of the Bible keeps us from avoiding the hard and difficult verses that maybe we need to address in our culture. And we sing those old hymns because, man, the words of those old hymns were actually saturated with the gospel. Doctrine that points us to Christ. And so rather than getting rid of our practices, what we do is we figure out, hey, like, which of our practices are actually biblical and which ones aren't? The ones that we're, we aren't, let's just hold them with an open hand and say, hey, maybe that was never a good idea and be willing to let go of them. But those that are, let's strengthen ourselves around those. That's what Jesus means when he says strengthens what remains and is about to die. In other words, if you don't strengthen yourself around the things that has been handed down to us from the apostles generation after generation, if you don't strengthen around those things, then you'll remain dead. He continues with his encouragement on how to find true spiritual living for this church in verse 3 when he tells them to remember. Remember what you received and heard is what he says. Now, what is it that they received? What is it that they heard that he wants them now to remember? The gospel. What has every church received and heard? It's the gospel of the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling them, go back to that gospel. Go back to what you know is true. This is why one of our first values as a church here at King's Cross is we call it being centered on the gospel. Meaning we never graduate from the gospel. As some writers have said, you know, sometimes churches treat the gospel as what gets you into the kingdom, and then we, we, we start to, to act like, like we move on to other things. But no, it's always about the gospel. We remind ourselves about the gospel every single week. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday to be reminded of the gospel every single week. In all of the sermons that we teach, in all the books that we read, and all the encouragement that we give one another, it needs to be tethered to the gospel. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, hey, look, you're trying to impress other people, but man, if you would just enjoy the fact that you're already justified before God, you don't have to prove yourself to others. You don't have to perform for others. You don't have to impress others because you're already fully known and fully loved. You don't have to perform to gain the status that you long for. Guys, remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7? Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by, with these Beatitudes, and he says things like, blessed are the weak, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, look, if you want to really understand the kingdom, if you want to really know what it means to get in on this grace, you've got to understand that has nothing to do about you. It has nothing to do about how impressive you are, 
how strong you are, how faithful you are, what it is that you can do and what it is that you have done. No, it's based on what Jesus has done. And you just rest in that. You enjoy that. You marinate in that. He tells them, look, you're already rich in Christ. Jesus is telling them they already have spiritual riches in him. And so he says, remember, what you have received, what you have heard, it was good news to you then, and it's still good news for you today. And so go back to it. He continues on with his encouragement towards spiritual living, and he says, in order to gain it, he continues in verse 3, he says, you got to keep it. Verse 3, middle verse 3, he says, keep it. What he's telling them is that the grace that they have received, the grace that they have heard, the grace that he just told them to remember and turn back to, now needs to be held tightly, now needs to be what shapes our inner lives, not just personally as Christians, but culturally as a church, corporately as a family, by telling us to keep the gospel, he's telling us to press deeper into the riches of Christ. And when we don't live that way, when we don't live in light of that gospel, he finally says we repent. Also in verse 3, he says, keep it and repent. Repent simply means stop what you're doing, turn around, run back to Jesus. Run back to his embrace. Embrace what you know. Embrace the gospel once again. And as verse 3 continues, he says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is simply Jesus' way of saying, look, there's a time when thieves came in the middle of the night. He tells the people in Sardis, you remember this from your history, right? Where thieves came in the middle of the night and they, they, they led this huge heist and your city fell. And Jesus is saying, just like that, I could come at any moment. Your life could end at any moment and so don't delay. I want you to have this sense of passion right now. I want you to have this sense of urgency right now to walk with me. To walk with me in white. As forgiven people. He says, if you do that, then man, you have a hopeful future. If you do these things, if you repent, if you are watchful, if you remember and keep the gospel, then you won't remain dead. Your future is actually going to be hopeful. And this is point number three, the promised hope if they do repent. What is their promised hope if they repent? Verse four, Jesus says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus is using imagery here. He's telling us that there are a few faithful Christians at this church. And he says, I want those Christians to know. Look, he says, I want them to know. Look, I see who you are. I see what you believe. And I see how you genuinely overflow with the grace that has saved you. And if you continue doing that, he says, you are going to wear white with me, which is a symbolic image and color that means that they're going to be considered forgiven of their sins, that they're going to be considered pure. That's why if you look at like those old pictures or images of like those old baptisms, that Baptist churches would do down by the river. You've ever seen like, oh, brother, where art thou, right? Like all those uh, baptisms down the river where they're all wearing like that garment of white, right? It was, it was a symbol that you were being cleansed and forgiven, made pure. That's what the white garments meant. 
that we're not just forgiven, but we're made new. We're made clean in Christ. That means that you're no longer defined by what you've done or by how you failed, but you're defined by what Jesus has done for you. You might feel like a mess. You might feel totally unworthy. You might feel guilty. And Jesus says, like, yeah, that's who I came for. That's actually who I came for. I came for the messy. I came for the dirty. I came for the guilty. I came for you. I love you. I died for you, and I'll take your sin onto me to the cross, and I'll give you my righteousness. You don't have to earn that. I'll just give it to you if you'll only believe. (laughs) He says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. In other ones, the one who does repent and the one who does remember and keep the gospel and is watchful and does all those things will be clothed in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I don't want you to miss the contrast that Jesus is making here by saying, if you are faithful to the end, if you just repent and believe and come back to me, then I will confess your name before my father and his angels to contrast that with what he said earlier when he tells this church, hey, look, your reputation is that you're alive. In other words, other people confessed that you were alive, but you were really dead. Jesus is saying, look, there's a reward that will be better than others confessing your name in this life. If you are faithful, if you will just repent and believe, come back to me, there is a reward for you that is so much better, so much more satisfying, so much more fulfilling than just having a great reputation to everyone around. No, for those who repent and return to Jesus, he will confess their name before the Father. Jesus will be your advocate on your behalf. Instead of looking at you and seeing your sin and the billions of reasons that you don't deserve a seat at the Lord's table, with Jesus, the Father will look at you and see none other than his own son's righteousness, welcome you home, walk you to your seat at the table. That's what Jesus is inviting us back to. Now I want us to consider, before we close, just a few ways, three ways that we can fall into what we've called the Sardesian error of being outwardly impressive but inwardly dead. Three ways that we can fall into the Sardesian error of being outwardly impressive but inwardly dead. Number one, you view Christianity as something that you inherited instead of something that saved you. You see, some of us grow up with this view of the Christian religion or the Christian faith that, that you're, that's something that you're born into that you're born into Christianity just like you're born into a nation or a nationality. I was born in California, and so therefore I'm American. I was born into this family, and so therefore I'm Christian. I'm Catholic. I'm Lutheran. I'm non-denom, right? You grow up thinking that you identify with Christianity, but there's never really a real relationship with Jesus. It's become more of a social identity for you rather than good news that saved you. The second way that we can fall into this error is when you view the Christian life as a routine that you have to do 
rather than a privilege that you get to do. Right? Now, this is subtle because you have two people living the Christian life that look exactly the same on the outside, but they're doing it for very different reasons. And one of them spiritually dead on the inside, and the other one is thriving. See, sometimes we can view the Christian life as a routine that we kind of have to do rather than this privilege that we get to do. I want you to think of like your family, right? Your family, hopefully, you sit down regularly for a meal, right? Or if maybe, you, you know, like you, you think of your, your upbringing, how your family would get together and you'd, you'd have a meal together, right? Like that could be a routine, that could be a routine, like, oh, this is something we do just kind of like it's what we have to do. But it should be, hopefully, a privilege, right? Like, that would be ideal. Hopefully, it's a privilege. Hopefully, it's a joy and a gift. Or maybe, like, you think about, like, going on a date with your, with your spouse or your significant other, right? Like, that could become a routine, like, oh, we're doing this because, like, you know, this is what we have to do. We do this every so often, you know, once a month we try to do this. But hopefully, ideally, it's a joy. It's a privilege. You see, the same thing can happen with our relationship with Jesus where we start to see things. We start to see the, the outward disciplines, the structure of the Christian life as routines rather than privileges. But yeah, like I go to church, I read my Bible, I have Christian friends, I give money because it's kind of what we have to do, you know? It's a Christian thing to do. It's become a rote routine. Or you can do all of those things as out of an overflow of a real, vibrant relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ to where you say, no, I love Jesus because he loved me first. I love my church because they're the realest expression that I have of the Lord's family that I now belong to. I look forward to rediscovering Jesus with my church family every single week, receiving communion with them, growing together, serving together, making a difference as we pursue what it means to be whole in Jesus together in a fractured world, living for the glory of God and the good of others and the everyday stuff of life. Imagine what a difference that would make. Not only to Christ's joy, but to your joy if you saw loving God, loving others in every area of life, as not something that you had to do, but something that you get to do. Because you've died to your old self, and now you've risen to walk in the newness of life as you follow King Jesus. Or number three, we can fall into the Sardesian era of being outwardly impressive but inwardly dead. When we live out our Christianity as a consumer, and not a contributor. When we live out Christianity as a consumer instead of a contributor. Now look, some of us, we find ourselves in this place where our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with the church, our relationship with just our spirituality, is one where we come as consumers to receive rather than contributors to give out of what Jesus has done in us. And look, when you come to your spirituality with a consumer mentality rather than a contributor mentality, then that'll kill a church fast. Because you are taking more than you're giving. See, when people come 
to church and they look at their relationship with Jesus and with other Christians as something that they take from and not something that they give to, that will kill the church. And look, one of the things that I love about our church is that like so many of of us, a bunch of our church family was not walking with Jesus just a few years ago did not have a church that they belonged to just a few years ago. Maybe they never grew up in the faith. Maybe they walked away from the faith. Maybe they were hurt by a church along the way, and they, 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 they just were spiritually homeless before they came to King's Cross. And like, I love that word church that affords people the grace and the hospitality and the safety and the time that they need to either discover how Jesus changes everything for the very first time or to rediscover that. And look, I don't ever want that to change about our church family and our church culture. I don't want that to ever change about us. And so for those that are hurting, those that are new, those that are either discovering for the first time this whole Jesus thing, or maybe rediscovering it for the first time in a while, like, man, we want to always say that the doors are open, that you're welcome here. It will give you the safety and the time and the grace that you need. But there comes a point when Jesus has started to change your heart. You start to realize what he's done for you. You start to plug into the family that you now belong to. And if you truly belong to Jesus and you've truly seen and have received the grace that he's given you, the only natural response, or we could say supernatural response as the spirit has worked in you, is for you to give of the gifts that you've received to not only love God, but to love others, to invest in the growth of those around you, to invite others to the table of the Lord that you now sit at. But if you're coming for years and decades just to take and never to contribute, Man, I think we need to heed the warning of Jesus when he says that on the outside, you might look impressive, but on the inside, you're spiritually dead. And so he's inviting us to not be more interested in our comfort than we are in our holiness. Don't be more interested in your convenience than you are in your own holiness or your family's holiness. Don't be a consumer. Jesus says, I want your faith to be a living faith. And look, friends, as as your friends, as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, like, I want your faith to be a living faith. I want my faith to be a living faith. And I need you guys to help me with that too. I want our church to be a living church where Jesus is always made, made much of, where people are meeting and re-meeting Christ, where the culture of our church actually matches the gospel of grace that we profess. Someone recently brought to my attention that they were, they were talking with a, a group of people uh, after a service one day. I think it was after a service. Uh, and most of the people um, in this, this conversation were uh, new to our church and been around churches for quite some time. And one of them outwardly expressed this observation that they made that in all the churches that they've ever experienced, the one difference that they've, they've noticed and, and picked up on in, in our church is that like no one here talks trash on other people behind their back. Like we don't gossip against one another. 
And how a lot of times, like, you stick around with the church long enough, you'll, you'll see that, like, there's these cliques and these factions, and, and people judge one another, and they, and they gossip about one, one another. And in other words, the gospel that the church professes doesn't match the culture that they actually embody. Man, I love that that observation was made of our church family. But... Man, I just want to say, like, don't let that change. Don't let that change. Because it can. And it will. If we're not watchful. If we're not awake. If we're not returning, remembering, rehearsing, keeping the gospel that brought us here in the first place. So look, I I want us to ask this question, like, where are we? I want you to ask the question, like, where, where am I? Where are you? Are you dead or alive? If your works are dead, then listen to the words of Jesus when he said, strengthen what you have. Return to the means of grace. Return to the disciplines of the faith, return to the gospel that Jesus gave his church. Find a home with this family and find nourishment in his gospel. Jesus closes his address to the church in Sardis with these words in verse 6. And I want you to receive these words as a command for us to heed this afternoon. When Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.